my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello again. You're listening to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky seventh topic at the end. I'm your host, Josh Baker, and today I'll be covering Office Mayhem, Posh Cults, and Crazy Killers. This is the 20th episode of the podcast, which means, well, nothing special, but hey, the big 2-0. We made it, listeners. Enough of this chit-chat. Let's bust out of this asylum and track down a maybe murderer together. Number 1, Mayhem, 2017, directed by Joe Lynch. Derek Cho is a suit at a big company. He meets a woman named Melanie who is having her house taken away. Derek doesn't help her. Derek gets framed for a screw-up and gets fired. Before he can be escorted out of the building, a quarantine locks the place down. A virus called ID7 has spread throughout the building, which makes a person's id take full control. Derek and Melanie team up to take down the bigwigs. They kill their way to the top of the building. After killing the boss man, Derek becomes the boss, gets Melanie's house back, and then quits to pursue painting with Melanie. The ID7 virus is the killer. But I just said that Derek and Melanie killed people. Also, a bunch of other people I didn't even bring up kill. Well, you see, the movie starts off by talking about a court ruling that found Neville Reed, a man that killed another guy in broad daylight while surrounded by co-workers, not guilty of said murder due to being under the influence of the ID7 virus. Due to that ruling, I'm pointing my finger at the virus and calling it the killer. Now, Derek's murder spree does seem to be pretty thought out, but he doesn't start talking about killing everyone until he's infected. This movie is what I wanted from the Belko experiment. Like that movie, Mayhem is set in a lockdown office building, but Mayhem is all about over-the-top cartoonish action, which is incredibly fun. No moral conundrums here, just all id, baby. This movie isn't aiming to be realistic in any way, so I'm not going to sit here and complain about unrealistic things. I will point out some of them real quick though, because hey, I like to complain just a bit. Like a past movie I brought up on this podcast, Mayhem heavily features a nail gun. The nail gun is treated like an actual gun throughout the movie and even has gun cocking sounds associated with it. So it's obvious that the filmmakers just wanted to do fun stuff with a nail gun. Even though I know more about nail guns than I ever thought I would at this point, I still enjoyed its presence in the movie. Since there is such an absence of realism, I'm much more able to suspend my disbelief here than in the other movie, Dead Body. Throughout Mayhem, there are multiple scenes where our main character, Derek, takes on groups of three or more people who are much larger than him. 
it's not like he has some amazing weapon helping him out either. He mostly uses a wrench and his fists and somehow always comes out on top. Most movie fight scenes don't feel realistic at all, but man, Derek should not be winning these fights. Speaking of fight scenes, if you want to see some really well done fight scenes where the combatants actually get fatigued and hurt throughout the fights and act realistically to the best of my knowledge, watch Atomic Blonde. The plot is all over the place, but it's one of the most aesthetically pleasing films I have ever seen. In Mayhem, there aren't really any standout kills. Sure, a guy gets disemboweled by a handheld power saw, but even then you don't really see much during the actual kill. The other kills are mostly beatdowns. Throughout the movie, Derek talks about a mug his sister got him, so I really enjoyed the scene where he uses a broken piece of the mug that still has the handle attached as jagged ceramic knuckles to punch the boss man. The acting in this movie is hammy, but hamminess makes a ton of sense given the circumstances. Steven Yoon of Walking Dead fame stars as Derek Cho. I enjoyed his performance. It's awesome to see a main character that isn't your average white dude. Off the top of my head, I can't even think of another movie made in the last 10 years in the US that features an Asian lead that isn't Jackie Chan. Melanie is played by Samara Weaving, who is also in The Babysitter and an episode of Ash vs. Evil Dead. So far, she has a good track record when it comes to horror content. Have Samara Weaving, Jillian Jacobs, and Margot Robbie ever been photographed together? Throw in Jamie Presley too. They all look pretty similar. I just found out Samara's uncle is no other than Hugo Weaving. Interesting. In Mayhem, there is a reference to a scene in Half-Baked where Scarface quits, which made me smile. Mayhem is a fun time. It has great sound design and lots of blood. I recommend checking this one out. If you want to see more movies about guys fighting their way up buildings, also check out The Raid and Dread. Number 2, Reanimator, 1985, directed by Stuart Gordon. A man named Herbert West comes to the States to continue working on a serum that raises the dead after he is ran out of Switzerland. He meets a guy named Dan Kane and brings him along for the ride. A dead animal and people are brought back to life. A hack doctor named Carl Hill is killed by Herbert, then brought back to life. More of the dead are raised. The film ends with Herbert getting dragged away by Dr. Hill's crazy reanimated body and Dan injecting his dead girlfriend with the serum. Herbert West is the killer. He kills Dr. Hill. Herbert's serum is what raises the zombies that kill, so those kills are on him also. If you've ever been interested in zombie movies, you've probably heard of Reanimator. It's something that's been on my watch list for years. If I somehow die in the future and someone comes across my dead body, I want them to leave a note stating, Josh dead, details later. Why? Because of the dead cat scene from this movie. Pet warning, a cat dies. It's then brought back to life, only to die again. Then be brought back to life again. There's a mangled body of a cat, but I think it looks propish enough to say you'll probably be fine seeing it. Anyway, the cat is Dan's, and Herbert allegedly found the cat dead and had to leave the apartment, so Dan asks why he didn't say something. Herbert then replies along the lines of, What should I have done? Left a note saying, Cat dead, details later. I'm paraphrasing for the most part, but cat dead, details later has stuck with me. So all the acting in this movie is terrible. Jeffrey Combs plays Herbert West. His performance is extremely campy, 
but that's what makes the movie work. Well, his campy performance and the visual effects. There is a ton of practical gore, such as brain removal, severed limbs, decapitated heads, and more. The effects for Dr. Hill, who walks around with his detached head, are very well done and make for a ton of fun scenes. The gore throughout is top-notch and gross. There's a sequence in the movie where Dr. Hill raises the dead in a morgue that all died in grisly ways. The special effects makeup for these morgue zombies is fantastic. There's a dead dad that becomes an undead dad in Reanimator, since Dan's girlfriend's dad is killed, then injected with the serum. The dad zombie ends up saving his daughter by crushing Dr. Hill's severed head. Speaking of Dr. Hill's body parts, Herbert injects Dr. Hill's torso with two syringes filled with his serum, which causes Dr. Hill's body to turn into a monstrosity that looks like it crawled straight out of John Carpenter's The Thing. I can definitely see why Reanimator is a cult classic. All the naked zombies. I mean all the campy fun and blood splatter. There are way more zombie butts than you'd ever expect to see in this movie, but unless you're a necrophiliac, the knowledge that there are a buttload of zombie butts probably isn't making you want to put this at the top of your watch list. Jeffrey Combs is in two other movies that I have watched for this podcast. He plays the FBI agent in The Frighteners, which I don't recommend, and he had a small part in Suburban Gothic as a doctor. I didn't recognize him in the latter. Reanimator is loosely based on H.P. Lovecraft's serial novelette Herbert West Reanimator. Even though it is loosely based on the work, it is said to be one of the most faithful adaptations of an H.P. Lovecraft property. I myself am not very familiar with H.P. Lovecraft. I have never sought out cosmic horror. It doesn't really excite me. If you have any recommendations of movies or H.P. Lovecraft's works that will change my mind, please let me know. If you are looking for a kooky movie where a bunch of dead people are revived by a bright green serum that appears to be the contents of a glow stick, check out Reanimator. It's a fun enough time. There are some bad looking sequels that I might check out in the future. Number 3, Creep, 2014, directed by Patrick Bryce. A guy named Aaron needs some quick cash, so he agrees to drive out to a cabin in the middle of nowhere and film stuff for a guy named Joseph. Joseph says he's dying of cancer and wants to make a video for his unborn son. There is a lot of weirdness. Joseph's sister ends up talking to Aaron on the phone. She tells Aaron to get out of there, which he eventually does. After the job is finished, Joseph sends Aaron weird videos and creeps around his house. Joseph's last video to Aaron says he needs a friend and apologizes for the weirdness. Aaron goes to a public lake to meet Joseph. Joseph then kills him with an axe. It's revealed that Joseph, who also goes by different names, has killed a ton of people. The man referred to as Joseph is the killer. I've hated pretty much everything I've seen that the Duplass brothers have had a hand in, besides a movie called Bad Milo, so why would I subject myself to a found footage movie in which one of them stars? I'm not 100% sure. Maybe I hate myself. Maybe I saw a glimpse of hope in this movie based on what some people on the internet say about it. Maybe I'm just a fool. It's probably a happy little mixture of all three of those reasons. I mean, all they did was produce Bad Milo. They didn't have a writing, acting, or directorial credit for that movie. That's probably why I liked it. Mark Duplass stars in Creep. He co-wrote it 
and is a main producer. So I knew I was going to hate this. Curse my penchant towards giving multiple chances. This movie is a complete waste of time. It's basically a movie about how stupid someone can be for chump change. The director, Patrick Bryce, plays the cameraman named Aaron in the movie, and he is an absolutely abysmal actor. I don't think he gives a believable response to anything that happens throughout the entire film. Maybe his character is supposed to be dumber than a rock. In that case, everything in this movie makes sense. If Aaron is supposed to be a person with the brain, none of what happens in the movie makes any sense at all. There are so many moments throughout the movie where a normal person with a functioning brain would nope out of the situation. Oh, this dude just handed me the money in the beginning and says I can leave whenever? Now he wants me to film him doing some weird stuff in a bathtub that he calls a tubby? Well, see you later. Oh, I'm staying? I mean, what could possibly happen to me in the middle of nowhere at this cabin? Oh, we are going for a run deep in the woods? Sure thing, boss. I just caught you in a lie? That's okay. My keys are mysteriously gone and you just want to drink some whiskey with me? Sounds good. The woman who's supposed to be your wife calls and says she's actually your sister and I need to get out of the house? Okay, okay. I guess I'll try to leave now. I get home and this dude is still being hella creepy towards me, leaving cryptic videos and odd presents. This last video from him says he's lonely and just needs a friend. I'll go meet him in a public place and pay no attention to my surroundings, so he gets a sweet, sweet opening to drive an axe into the top of my head. Aaron, you are by far one of the dumbest characters ever written. This movie drags on forever with nothing of interest happening. We get seven absolutely horrendous jump scares, most of which have added sounds. It's a found footage movie, you idiots. Adding in sounds that don't fit with what's happening really ruins the idea of found footage. Another thing that ruins a found footage film is having your murderer be played by an easy recognizable actor. Mark Duplass is fine in this role. I think practically anyone can play Joseph the weird oddball killer without much effort. Get some unknown to play the character. Also, if your final scene in your R-rated horror movie is going to include an axe kill, remember that driving an axe into the top of someone's head is going to create a bloody mess. The axe will also probably be a lot harder to dislodge from the skull than it is in this movie. You build up to this kill scene, then trip over your own feet and land face first in a fresh steamy cow pie. This movie is a complete waste of time. Do not watch Creep. At the end of the movie, Joseph, who now says he's Bill, shows that he has a bunch of murder tapes and DVDs. I mean a whole closet full, which is absolutely ridiculous. Homie isn't slick. There's no way he would have been able to kill that many people without being caught. This movie is stupid and bad. Way to sign a four-picture deal with the Garbage Bros Netflix. Number 4, The Invitation. 2015, directed by Karen Kusama. A guy named Will gets invited to a weird dinner party by his ex-girlfriend Eden. Once he arrives there with his current girlfriend and sees everyone, including his old friends, Will starts acting all strange. It's revealed that Will and Eden had a son who died. Eden and her new boyfriend David try to sell everyone on this weird cult called The Invitation. Eventually, Eden, David, and their two random cult friends that also showed up at the party try to kill everyone with poison, but Will foils their plan. The cult then starts shooting and stabbing people to death. 
Will, his girlfriend, and one of their friends survives while everyone else dies. The movie ends by showing multiple houses where the cult are killing people. The Invitation Cult are the killers. That summary seems confusing. Basically, some friends go to a dinner party and the hosts, who are now in a cult, try to get everyone to drink the Kool-Aid. I don't know about you, but if my friends joined a cult, I wouldn't let them hear the end of it. I also wouldn't hang around at their weird, lame dinner party. I mean, maybe I would stay if I had a kid that died with one of the hosts, but I honestly think I'd still bail as soon as things get weird. Picture this, you're hanging out with some friends, and one of them pulls out their MacBook and shows everyone a commercial for a cult. Also, that one friend is completely serious about it. It's not a joke. What would you and your friends do? I know that I wouldn't let cult friend hear the end of how stupid it is that they're in a cult. I feel like the reaction the video gets in the movie isn't realistic. To be fair, all the characters appear to be rich douchebags that live in Los Angeles, so maybe people bringing up that they're in a weird cult and want more people to join is completely normal. I'm in the industry, join this cult. It's a laugh. The Invitation is a well-made movie. For the most part, the film is orange, but that probably has some deeper meaning even though it's not the most aesthetically pleasing decision. Besides the Nickelodeon color correction and some really dark shots, everything else is done well. The cinematography and sound design make the entire movie unsettling and creepy. Something I enjoyed about the movie is that you never really know if Will is just acting a fool or if the cult friends are truly the problem until the Kool-Aid incident. The acting is fine for the most part. Budget Tom Hardy, Logan Marshall Green plays Will and his acting is pretty good. This is a slow burn film and once the cult's true intentions come to light, we get some intense practical gore. The movie also starts off with some gore. Pet warning, Will hits a coyote with his car and has to put it out of its misery with a tire iron. Most of that is off screen, but it's still a super depressing scene if you like animals. Does the coyote death add anything to the plot? Not really. In the movie, Eden decides to kill herself with a gun. She doesn't know much about the human body though, so she shoots herself in the stomach. Nice one, Eden. You might die quickly, but you have a high chance of having a slow, painful death. Shooting yourself in the stomach is definitely not on my list of ways to die quickly and or peacefully. The Invitation is a well-made film, but it doesn't really do anything exciting or new. It's pretty forgettable. If you are looking for a slow burn horror thriller, then this is for you. I give it a soft recommendation, but I feel like you can get a lot more enjoyment elsewhere. The Invitation is 90% boring dinner party with eccentric friends, and 10% oh god, they're a killer cult. Last note, the director Karen Kusama also directed Aeon Flux and Jennifer's Body. The latter is a fun horror comedy that I recommend checking out. Number 5, Alina, 2015, directed by Daniel DiGrado. I enjoyed this movie quite a bit, so I recommend checking it out. Here's your chance to do it spoiler free. Skip to 23 minutes 55 seconds if you want to go in blind. Now back to it. This is a Swedish film, so pardon my butchering of any names. A girl named Alina is bullied by girls at a private school. Josephine, Alina's ex-girlfriend, is now a ghost that haunts her and attacks people. Josephine committed suicide by jumping off a bridge. Alina is now with a girl named Fabian. 
The main bully, Philippa, tries to humiliate Alina, and when her attempt fails, Philippa tracks down and attacks Alina. Josephine kills Philippa. Alina stabs Josephine in the stomach with scissors. It's then revealed that Josephine's ghost doesn't exist. She's a manifestation of Alina's guilt since she pushed Josephine while she was standing on the edge of the bridge threatening to kill herself. Alina stabbed herself, not Josephine's ghost. Alina begins to bleed out as Fabian comes to her aid and calls an ambulance. The movie ends before the ambulance arrives. Alina is the killer. From the moment Josephine shows up on screen, I knew that she wasn't real. Luckily, this movie doesn't go full Fight Club and actually confirms that Josephine is a creepy ghost pretty early on in the movie. Everything in the movie is beautiful, and I'm not sure if that's just because Sweden is beautiful. I'd love to go check out all the Scandinavian countries. Surprisingly, this movie has some great gore scenes, despite only one confirmed kill. Alina might bleed out, but it's left somewhat ambiguous. Stabbing yourself in the stomach normally won't kill you very quickly. All the gore is practical and vibrant. We get a lot of blood on faces. In one scene, Philippa gets a gnarly nosebleed after her face is smashed. The best gore scene isn't during the confirmed kill where jerk-faced Philippa is stabbed through the back of the head with scissors. Nope, that scene's gore is actually pretty weak. The best gore scene comes from a hallucination Alina has. Alina hallucinates that Josephine's ghost, Ghostephine, as you will, conjures Philippa and Fabian in Alina's bed. The two conjured girls start heavily making out, then Ghostephine slashes their throats. This doesn't stop the steamy, now bloody makeout sesh, it just adds color and wound licking to the equation. Yeah, it's kind of grotesque and beautiful at the same time, as messed up as that sounds. I got heavy Uro Girl vibes from that scene. I've talked about Uro Girl before, but if you missed it or forgot what it is, it's a Japanese movement that combines gore and eroticism. Alina is the new girl at this all-girls private school. She has see-through eyebrows. Philippa and her gang are mean to her. This prompts Ghostephine to suggest that Alina dye her hair blonde, but Ghostephine ends up dying in black. Tricky Ghostephine. Thing is, the issue wasn't the color of the hair on your head, Alina. It's your weird see-through eyebrows. You just needed to dye your eyebrows a darker color. Her eyebrows remain see-through, but once Alina has new black bangs, she looks a lot less weird. I call it the Yolandi effect. The cover of the movie is post-makeover Alina holding bloody scissors. Way to completely spoil the twist. I mean, the twist is obvious and knowing it doesn't ruin the movie, but it still seems strange to show the ending on the cover. There's a part in the movie where Philippa tries to put Alina on blast by showing everyone at a party some of Alina's well-done horror drawings, then texting out some private pictures of Alina and Josephine. Way to show everyone Alina is a good artist and was in a relationship in the past, Philippa. You stupid idiot. My only gripe with the movie is Philippa's death. The whole movie we are shown how terrible she is. Her death is incredibly quick and not very satisfying. There is a scene where Philippa gets a rock or ball thrown at her through a window. The window shatters and she's knocked down. Her reaction to this did not seem very believable. She just stands up like, hmm, that's weird. Besides that strange reaction, I think the acting in this is good. It's in Swedish, so it's a little hard for me to tell. Alina is a well-crafted film. I really enjoyed it and recommend that you give it a watch.
Number six, Alone in the Dark, 1982, directed by Jack Shoulder. Dr. Dan replaces Dr. Harry at a psychiatric hospital. The dangerous third-floor patients of the hospital believe Dan killed Harry, whom they liked. The power goes out, allowing them to escape and try to hunt down Dan. Wacky shenanigans are had, which leave multiple people dead, including three of the four dangerous patients who made it to Dan's house. The leader of the group, Frank Hawks, leaves Dan's house after finding out Dr. Harry is still alive. Frank ends up in a punk club where he meets a punk girl whom he pulls a gun on. They both laugh and the movie ends with them probably living happily ever after together. The four dangerous patients are the killers. To start things off, I'd like to talk a little about the Quattro. We have Frank Hawks, the paranoid POW, Byron Preacher Sutcliffe, the pyromaniac, Ronald Elster, the obese child molester, and John, the bleeder skag, the homicidal maniac. For some reason, as soon as these men are free, all of them start a murderin'. I get that the homicidal maniac just wants to kill, but it's kind of strange that everyone else starts killing people all willy-nilly, when the only thing they seem to want to do is avenge the death of their friend Dr. Harry by killing Dr. Dan. It would make a lot more sense to me if the only person they tried to kill was Dan, but hey, that wouldn't make for a good body count now, would it? We get some interesting kills that use a lot of practical gore with bright red blood. The orderly gets broken in half, much like Bane does to Batman 10 years later. Out of the very few back breaks I've seen during my time watching movies for this podcast, I must say this is one of the best. A guy gets his throat ripped out with one of those gardening hand rakes. A cleaver is driven into a guy's back that's pushed deeper in with a baseball bat. An ear gets cut off. A detective takes a crossbow bolt to the stomach, which is somehow strong enough to raise him off the ground and prop him up on a tree. I don't think that's possible in any way, shape, or form, but Halloween pinned a guy to a door with a knife, so why can't we pin a guy to a tree with a crossbow? A lot of the gore shots are slow and strange, but I did enjoy the kills in this movie. There isn't much else to enjoy. Dr. Dan is the most insufferable main character in any movie I've ever seen. From the moment he arrives on screen, I was rooting for him to die. He's a coward and a moron. While his house is under siege by the Quattro, he is offered a knife to use as defense for himself and his family. He responds with the sheepish, no. He is by far the worst character. His sister is an 80s punk who shows up and takes everyone to a punk show where a band called the Sick F-Words play themselves. All the other scenes in the punk club are fun. I especially like when Frank finds love at the end. One cool thing about the movie is the reveal that the homicidal maniac, the bleeder, has been in the house all along, in plain sight. Dan's sister and wife end up in jail during a protest where they meet a guy. He gives them a ride home and ends up staying for dinner. The crazies show up, so the guy also helps defend the house. The thing is, that guy is the bleeder. Dun dun dun! You never see his face when he's introduced and escapes with the others. He's revealed when he starts having one of his signature nosebleeds. The acting in this is fine. There is a lot of camp, and I wouldn't say any of the acting is amazing. Donald Pleasance, who's best known for playing Dr. Loomis in Halloween, plays the lead psychiatrist at the hospital. I have never liked his acting, but if you like his weird portrayal of doctors, you'll like his performance in this. 
Now, in Alone in the Dark, the only thing keeping the dangerous Quattro locked up is a security system solely powered by electricity. Whose great idea was that? Electricity is not infallible. It goes out. The entire town is hit by a blackout, and within five minutes of said blackout, the townspeople go full-on looter mode. Is that just what people did back in the day? The electricity's out. Get in the car, kids. We're going looting. Alone in the Dark was Jake Shoulder's directorial debut, so it makes sense that it didn't end up being something incredible. That being said, he did go on to direct A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, which is stupidly fun. Skip out on Alone in the Dark and watch A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, instead. One last thing. The babysitter in this movie is named Bunky. What kind of a name is Bunky? Is it short for something? Okay, I lied. One more quick thing. There is a sequence where the punk sister hallucinates that a zombie creature crawled into the house. Tom Savini was brought in specifically to create the zombie, and for the three seconds it's on screen, it looks creepily fantastic. I wish we got more weird sister hallucinations. She should have been the main character, not Dan. Number 7. Spooky Storytime When I was a small boy, I had roll-out Dance Dance Revolution mats like all small boys had. I thought getting them would help me get in better shape, but I probably used them for a combined two hours, half of which was spent playing Soul Calibur 2 with the mats. You don't know who the best fighter among your friend group is until you break out the mats. Anyway, fast forward some time later. I'm lying in bed in the dark, as one does when you try to go to sleep, when I hear the sound of what could only be an army of demonic hamsters, scuttling at the foot of my bed, ready to overtake me and eat all my delicious human flesh. Fear of my imminent, slow death by a million tiny nibbles had knocked out my ability to move my body. Luckily, the sound stopped. The hamsters were showing me mercy. After waiting a reasonable amount of time, I turned on my ceramic elephant lamp and slowly approached the horde. You see, it was never a dangerous army of little furballs. It was the sound of one of my roll-out DDR mats slowly falling over. That mat must have taken more hours off my life than hours gained dancing upon it in one painfully slow fall. Years later, I was a man. Well, an idiot boy in a man's body. I started working at a startup to which I would normally enjoy a leisurely bike ride to on my beautiful purple one-speed. One day, I drove my truck instead for one reason or another, and since I usually rode my spectacular purple bike, I did not have a pass to park in the company parking lot. Not to worry, I thought. I could easily park in a close-by neighborhood filled with rich people who hated anyone other than themselves and their posh friends parking in. They may be wealthy, but they don't own the streets. So I parked at the top of a hill by a wooded area and moseyed on my way to work. I work a peculiar shift for an office job, and during daylight savings time, that means it's dark once I make my exit. So it was dark during my escape home that night. I clocked out, kicked open the door, and made my journey up the arduous hill into the now dark neighborhood that currently housed my truck. Upon getting halfway up the hill towards my metal vehicle, which I am free from most types of harm once inside, I spotted a strange figure hunched down at the edge of the wooded area scavenging around on the ground. The figure was a woman in a white nightgown, and obviously patient zero of the zombie apocalypse. 
I continued walking towards my truck at a brisker pace on full alert. At any moment, the flesh-crazed ghoul was going to become aware of my presence and go into full attack mode. Fortunately for me, I was able to get into the safety of my car and drive off without alerting the fiend. It just so happens that behind the brush where this creature was looking for human pieces to eat, there was a house where a rich hipster lady lived. The zombie was not a zombie. It was in fact that hipster lady creepily picking flowers in the dark in her nightgown. Why did she decide to pick flowers at that time in that attire? I'll never know. All I know is she scared the hell out of me. That'll do it for episode 20 of Blank is the Killer. I hope spooky story time wasn't too terrifying. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their lovely website, allowing it to grace all your favorite podcast apps. Check out other podcasts on the network like Basuda Boys and Director Showdown. There's a bunch of great stuff for your ears. Blank is the Killer will be back on June 17th. Board up your house to ensure you stay alive until then. Make sure to get food prior, though.